Colossians 4, and in a minute I'll read from verse 2. Colossians 4. You thought we'd never get out of Colossians 3, did you? <laughs> Colossians 4. And Father, as we look to the scriptures, we need your guidance and we need your help. We need your spirit to give us understanding. And we pray to that end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, the passage before us is clearly about evangelism. It's about sharing your faith with others. It's about building Christ's kingdom. It's about the proclamation and the promotion of the gospel, or as Paul calls it in verse 3, the mystery of Christ. Which, to state the mystery of Christ in a succinct sentence, as we've said this before when we were in this in, in, back in chapter 1, it's declaring that the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death as a substitute for us in order to satisfy the wrath of God that's against us. And he did that through his death, burial, and resurrection. And the mystery is that anyone, Jew or Gentile, all people who repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in that message are saved eternally. This passage instructs us on how to proclaim that message and to promote the message. How to reach people for Christ. How to witness to your friends and family members and co-workers and acquaintances. In five short verses, Paul lays out a pattern for evangelism that every Christian believer can participate in. He's talking to us, he's instructing us on how to, to bring the gospel to those who don't know Christ, who are unbelievers, certainly those of, who are not seen on a Sunday morning. This is what Paul means by the word outsiders in verse 5. And it's not a surprise that he's, he's not bringing this to the forefront of our minds until the end of the epistle, until after he laid out in chapters 1 and 2 uh, how we should understand our salvation. He doesn't talk about evangelism until after he's challenged us in chapter 3 to set our minds on things above and not on things that are on earth. Uh, he, he didn't talk to us about evangelism until after he, he displayed to us how we are supposed to put off the old man and walk as new creatures in Christ. Um, he, he didn't instruct us on how to reach the world for Christ until he, he showed us how we have to have peace rule in our hearts and have songs of Christ dwell 
in us and have everything that we're to do is for his glory and for his name. He didn't exhort us to go out and, and talk to others about Christ until after he exhorted us how to live in our lives, in our marriages, and raising our children as children respond to parents and as slaves and masters and households. He, he doesn't talk about evangelism until he addresses all of those issues because it's our belief and our behavior, it's our life and our doctrine that are essential for us to make the proclamation and make the promotion of the gospel. And now that Paul has laid out this foundation for the Christian life, now he's exhorting believers to share and talk about the good news that they've experienced. But what's so fascinating about this is how God uses all of his servants to proclaim his message in a world that needs Christ, but he uses his servants differently. Paul is actually speaking to two different groups of people in this text. In verse 2 through 4, he's talking to those like himself, who I will call gospel proclaimers. These are men who are evangelists, men who have speaking gifts, men who are called to do this. And he uses the pronoun us and I in those few verses. Now, as we close, as we close out the final greeting in the next week or two in verse 7, Paul gives a mini list of some of those he's talking about when he references the pronoun us. These are men and women who are with him as he's in prison. One's a fellow prisoner in verse 10. He talks about fellow workers in verse 11. And he's talking about men and women who are currently with him on the front lines. These are the mouthpieces. These are the workers. These men have speaking gifts. They have evangelistic gifts. And they are proclaimers of the gospel. In verse 5 and 6, you notice he changes the pronoun to you. And there he's addressing those in the church who are not on the front lines, who don't necessarily have speaking gifts, who don't have evangelistic gifts. And though these men and women, boys and girls, are not proclaimers of the gospel, we're going to call them promoters of the gospel. The distinction between the two is clear just from the pronouns, but that little word ought, that little word ought in verse 4, and the same word ought in verse 6, gives even greater clarity to what I'm saying. You see, in verse 4, Paul and those like him, he says, ought to speak by going through open doors, by declaring the mystery, and by making it clear. We'll, we'll understand that in a little bit. In verse 6, those who are not on the front line, who don't have speaking gifts, who don't have gifts of evangelism, they ought to know how to answer each person as they walk with wisdom toward unbelievers, use their time with unbelievers wisely, and speak graciously with words that are seasoned with salt. Now, this is so important, I want to I say this again in a different way. Paul sees his responsibility in those who are gifted like he is. They're going to go through open doors. They're going to have regular conversations about Christ. These are those who we would call initiators and proclaimers. And their desire is to make it clear, which is how he says, I ought to speak. And Paul sees this responsibility of those in the local church. He sees the responsibility of the average church member who's up in the pew on a Sunday morning, 
who wakes up every day, the, the moms, the dads, the husbands, the wives, the workers of nine to five workers who go to the grocery store or are faithful in their local church, who live as believing Christians in the routine of life, they're not the initiators. Rather, he's encouraging them to be responders and promoters. Responders to questions that some may ask about their faith because of how they live their lives. His desire is for them to know, according to the last phrase of verse 6, how you ought to answer each person. You see the difference? This is so important, and it's so. I just want to make it clear, so I'm going to say it one other way, okay? Paul and those gifted like him ought to speak, and those who are not gifted like him ought to answer. Now, in, in our church family, and I don't know everybody as well as I know Brad, I put Brad in the category of the person who's a gospel proclaimer and initiator. Uh, I, too, as a pastor, I'm commanded to do the work of an evangelist, and, and, uh, and I'm, I'm called to do this as well. Uh, most of you are not like Brad, and you never will be. You can talk to a lamppost about Christ in any, in any opportunity, and he takes advantage of all kinds of gospel promotion that comes his way. Most of you will never be like that, but you can still be part of gospel promotion. And I'll explain how in just a moment. Because the passage makes a distinction between these two types of people in the body of Christ, and I personally find this tremendously helpful. If you've been in the church for very long, you, you probably have felt at some point tremendously guilty over the fact that you haven't given the gospel to enough people, especially if someone's pounding away, telling you you have to. And what Paul's saying here is just live the Christian life. You will have opportunity to speak on Christ's behalf as your conduct and your speech will cause others to ask questions and you will have a chance to answer. God is not calling all of us to go out and proclaim he is not asking everyone to initiate a conversation about Christ. There are some of you in this room who I know personally, you would never initiate a conversation with anyone about anything, let, let alone the gospel. That's just not you. So you're not a proclaimer, but you can be a promoter. And you're happy to answer any questions that might come your way. Now, isn't that freeing? That we're all part of the big picture, of bringing in the gospel to the world. In a sense, the proclaimers who are on the front lines, they're, if you put this in military terms, they're, they're, part, they're the air assault. You know, they're, they're out dropping bombs, and they're out planting seeds, and they're throwing things out there. And then you bring in the ground troops, those who are there ministering to one another, knowing people, living their daily lives with others, and they're the ones who are answering the questions that come. And that's how God makes all this work. Both, both are, are important for the gospel to go forward. Both. They're vital for Christ to be proclaimed and promoted in the world. And, and again, we're all to speak on Christ's behalf, but we're going to do it differently depending upon our calling, our gifts, our personality. There's no one size fits all as it comes to telling others about Christ. This is really where the passage is going. But we need to start with where Paul starts. And he starts with, and we don't want to miss this, evangelism, first and foremost, he says, starts with prayer in verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us 
that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. That phrase, continue steadfastly, is actually only one word in Greek, and it means to do something with intense effort despite difficulty. It's an effort that is supposed to continue. And being watchful means stay awake, stay alert. It's the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 5.8, where he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The encouragement to pray with thanksgiving is not an add-on, because as believers, we always have so much to be thankful for, and our prayer lives should reflect the, the uh, praise-filled, thankful hearts as we talk to our Heavenly Father. But praying with steadfast alertness or an intense watchfulness is a reminder that we are in the spiritual battle that First Peter describes. We do have an enemy. Ephesians 6 reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities. It's against powers and world forces of this darkness. And Paul's encouragement is to bring that continual, watchful, steadfast, battle-ready alertness with you when you pray for him as he's on the front lines. See, Paul knew he was in a battle, and he's calling on the Colossian church to participate with him as he goes out to those front lines to proclaim the gospel. And he's very specific in his request. Notice there are two. The first one's in verse 3. His first request is that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. And the second request is in verse 4, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. I mean, simply put, he, he's in battle with an identified enemy, and he's asking the church to cry out to God to open doors so he could proclaim God's word or the mystery of Christ as clearly as he possibly can. Paul, of all people, knew the difference between open doors and doors that were completely closed. I mean, throughout the book of Acts, he was, I think he was chased out of more towns than he was received in. His reference to being in prison was actually on account of preaching in a place where he was not received. I won't have you turn there, but according to 1 Corinthians 16.8, Paul found an open door in the city of Ephesus, and he wrote, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. A an open door meant receptivity to the mystery that he was proclaiming. Obviously, the adversaries at this moment were, were making an attempt to close the door, and they were unsuccessful. And this open door meant that the people in Ephesus had a willingness to hear the word of God as Paul preached. It meant their hearts were prepared. There was an interest in God that was not there previously. See, this is his longing. And this is what we should be praying for as well. In fact, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4 for a moment. 2 Corinthians 4, just back a few pages, and I'll, we'll look at verse 3. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. 
I certainly could read more than this, but I just want to read verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We are in a constant spiritual battle. The gospel cannot be seen by unbelievers. It is veiled to them. The God of this world, our enemy, has blinded their minds, blinded their eyes. They cannot see their sin, so they cannot see the need of a Savior. They have spiritual needs that there's absolutely nothing that we can do in our own effort with our own resources to open their blind eyes. We need God to do the work. We need His Spirit to do the work. We need the Spirit to do what Jesus promised in John 16 when He said that when He comes, He'll convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of, and of judgment. And if God, if God does not open these doors for this to take place, then clearly the doors will not be open. So we pray. Pray for people like Paul. Pray for those on the front line. Pray for Brad as he wraps up his bus garage ministry. Pr pray for those who have a voice in the pulpit like myself and, and, and a voice, even those who have a voice in a workplace. We need to pray for open doors for the word to go forward. We need to pray for them because we're in a battle and we cannot advance. We cannot advance without God intervening and he won't intervene unless we pray. Why else would Paul ask for us to pray for open doors if the doors would be open without us praying? Now, some of you are thinking already, Rick, someone's going to ask, don't you believe in God's sovereignty? Don't you believe that God will save his elect no matter what? So, and I absolutely believe in God's sovereignty. I believe the Bible teaches election. But we're not fatalists. Well, we don't have a case, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be mentality. We believe that God uses means to accomplish his sovereign purposes, and one of those means is prayer. If doors won't open without prayer, then Paul would not have asked for prayer to open the doors. The sad part of the evangelical church is that historically, when the gospel stalls, in a community, what do we do? We immediately jump to programs instead of prayer. And it's a good question to ask us, Grace Fellowship Church, is, it, is could it be that our lack of unbelievers coming to Christ is related to our lack of praying for open doors for the word to go forward? I mean, I think the text demands that we at least ask ourselves the question. And, and even as we gather together on Wednesday night for our prayer meeting, which I'm so thankful that we have a church, and it's always had a church since I've been here that has a prayer meeting, we need to examine ourselves in the very nature of our prayer when we pray. I think if we're honest, we spend more time on things that affect us physically than we do the eternal souls of those around us 
and around, and around the world. So Paul's challenge is, is to put some intense, watchful effort and go to battle against the enemy who's blinding those around us and beg the Lord to open doors. Look at his second request in verse 4. He's asking for prayer that he would make the message of Christ, the declaration of the mystery. He's asking for prayer that that he would make the message clear. That that is so important. It's, It's important because for the message to penetrate the heart, it has to engage the mind. There are things a person must clearly know and understand to become a Christian believer. I mean, you, you can ask people all day long, do, do you want to go to heaven? Well, of course I want to go to heaven. Well, if you want to go to heaven, then just ask Jesus to come into your heart. Okay, Jesus, come into my heart. That's not salvation. Now, in some circles, that's what the gospel has been reduced to. Now, we've been going over this for quite a long time on our Wednesday night prayer Bible study. When We're in the book of Romans. We're still in chapter 1. And last Wednesday, we took some time to talk about gospel clarity. And if you have the time to go onto the church website and look at that particular video, I think it might be helpful uh, to just take a look at it. The prayer for clarity would mean, would mean that we have to be clear first and foremost about sin. Sin separates us from the holy God who created us, who demands perfection, and we are accountable to him. And once they understand their sin understand the wrath of God upon them because of their sin, that's when we point them to the Savior who lived a perfect life that none of us could live and died a sacrificial death that none of us deserve. And though he died for us, he didn't stay in the tomb, but he rose from the dead on the third day, conquering sin, conquering death, and promising eternal life to all who will call upon him. And when they're confronted with their sin, they understand that Christ paid the penalty for their sin. They have to repent of their sin, give up their sin, and put all their faith and all their hope and all their trust in Jesus Christ to save them. And it's our lack of clarity that produces false converts. People who who believe that they're Christians, but they're not because the true gospel was never presented to them. So they're believing a lie. And if the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote 13 epistles, who was an Old Testament scholar before he was a Christian, who had been taught by the risen Lord, if he's asking for clarity, what does that do for us? We need to beg the Lord for clarity. We need his help. It just shows that salvation is a complete work of God. He has to open the doors. He has to cause the word to go forward. And he has to help us to be clear. So our prayer needs to be, God, open doors. And when the doors are open, help the message of the gospel be delivered with great clarity. Open blind eyes, unstop deaf ears. Soften hard hearts. Convict of sin. And give them and others the right words to explain the predicament of sin and then explain the wonderful answer to our predicament. I think the right message to a closed heart falls on deaf ears. 
or the right message to a closed door falls on deaf ears. An unclear message to an open door, I think, does more to confuse than convert. So both are necessary, and and, and Paul's begging these people to pray for him and those fellow workers who are with him. When the door is open, Paul wants to be, he he doesn't want to be the one who doesn't take full advantage. He wants to be absolutely clear. This is how he and his fellow workers ought to proclaim the gospel. This is how he says we ought to speak. This is our calling. This is our desire. This is what God wants of us. Now, as a side note, I think we should at least say as well that we have to be careful of of forcing a clear message on a door that's closed. Oftentimes, we find ourselves, especially with family and loved ones and friends, we find ourselves so desirous for people to hear the gospel, yet there's no open door, and so we just force the issue. There's a reason why Jesus told the disciples when they're in a town that didn't receive their message, they should leave and wipe the dust off their feet. There's a reason that Jesus told them not to cast pearls before swine. Some people aren't ready, and sometimes you have to wait. This kind of gets us into the next step of walking with wisdom toward outsiders as, as the passage continues. Because here, the direction changes, and now he's not talking to himself and his companions and his fellow workers as gospel proclaimers, Now he's talking to the gospel promoters. He's talking about the foot soldiers. He's talking to the congregation. See, Paul knows that you're the ones, not him, that live daily with outsiders, which means that you live daily with unsaved people. It means that you live daily among those who don't know Christ, that you live daily among those who have no interest in Christ or God. And though you're not a frontline proclaimer, though you probably won't initiate a conversation, you promote the gospel every day of your life, right from the text, by number one, how you live, by number two, how you speak, and number three, by how you answer. And and he starts with your life. Now remember, he just finished exhorting husbands, wives, parents, children, slaves, and masters. So as as the context continues... He's just saying, in the normal routine of your life, he says in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Which immediately reminds us that God never intended to pull believers out of the world. He he never intended for us to live in 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 a compound, live in a holy huddle, isolated from others. We are, as the Apostle John reminds us, to be in the world and yet not of the world. From the time you put your faith and trust in Christ until the day he calls you home to be with him in heaven forever, for the rest of your earthly life, you are an ambassador for Christ. You're a living witness and a living testimony of the salvation that you've received in Christ. And you promote the gospel by just living for him. Now, isn't that freeing? Isn't that freeing that you just have to wake up every day, love the Lord Jesus, and live for him? He's not telling you to go to the front line and find outsiders. He's just saying that when you're with unbelievers in your neighborhood, at restaurants, at the store, in the workplace, wherever you are, live in a way that honors the Lord that you serve. He's just 
He's just saying live like a Christian. Walking is always an idiom for living or behaving. He uses the word walk more than once in the book of Colossians. In chapter 1, verse 10, he, he exhorts believers to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. Then he defines that as being fully pleasing to him. In 2.6, we're commanded to walk in him. He's speaking to our behavior as a reflection of the life and conduct of the Lord Jesus. We are in him and he is in us and we should be walking or living in a way that demonstrates the transformation that took place in our lives. As new creatures in Christ, your attitudes, your work ethic, your language, your responses to authority, your honesty, how you love your spouse, how you raise your children and young people, how you obey and honor your parents. All of these are noticeable to outsiders. You're a living representative of, of Jesus who now lives in you. In fact, we saw this several weeks ago in Colossians 3, verse 5. Remember the transformation that took place when these Colossians became believing Christians. And this happens to anyone who's a believing Christian. Paul writes in verse 5 of Colossians 3, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, along with anger and wrath and malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You used to live just like the people around you, and you put these sins aside, and you no longer lie. And, and you, you're, you're dead and dying to immorality and impurity and covetousness and so on. And the new you, the new Christ in you, is noticeable to the unsaved or the outside world or the unbelievers around. At least it should be. And making the best use of your time can be translated the most of the opportunity. And Paul is saying that our daily living, as we walk in obedience to Christ, will create opportunities for us to represent him to unbelievers. He, he's simply stating, your behavior should create opportunities to promote the gospel. And it's because it's so different than the people around you, isn't it? See, th then he shows how our behavior and our speech go hand in hand. Walking with wisdom helps us to know when to speak and when not to speak. When we do speak, notice Paul's admonition. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now, the word gracious, it, it just, it means, it means pleasant. It's the same word used when we use the word grace. God's unmerited favor poured out on a sinful, undeserving man. It's speaking in such a way that it's a benefit to those you're speaking to. And the context we're in right now is still in conversation now with those who are outside the faith. Now, unfortunately, 
This has become a lost art in many evangelical churches. Because many believers today want nothing to do with outsiders. And their speech and what they say in particular on social media is nothing close to being gracious. We've become very similar to the first century Pharisees who we distance ourselves from sinners and tax collectors and lepers, and they spend all their time in their own holy huddle and have a disdain for those who aren't in their camp, who aren't following their rules and traditions. Now, I, I said a little bit on this last week, but I want to come back to it again because it's so important that we continue this particular thought. Because in some evangelical churches, it's, it's not any different. When believers align themselves only with those in their camp, especially their political camp, not only do we fail to associate, associate with outsiders, our speech toward them becomes very ungracious, not gracious. It's unkind, and it's unchristian, and it doesn't promote the gospel to all those we need to promote it to. Now, you saw the same things I've seen by those who claim to be Christians, who, who have said or put up social, on social media horrible, horrible things about our governor, horrible things uh, about the election, horrible things about our current president and those who support him. And the person who claims to be a Christian and acts and speaks this way is not promoting the gospel. They're actually discrediting the gospel. I washed windows last week at someone's house, and the name of someone that he and I both knew uh, came into the conversation. And, and this gentleman said, and I didn't even know this gentleman, I'm just washing his windows for the first time. He says, that person is so far on the right, and he believes the only way to heaven is to attend his church. And I, and I thought, wow, politics, church, salvation, all melded together in one person in one sentence. So he has no voice to speak for Christ to an outsider who's not in his camp. We've got to disconnect all of that, walk with wisdom toward all outsiders, all those who don't know Christ, promoting the gospel of the kingdom we belong to, not the political views of a nation that we are strangers and aliens in. We just have to be mindful that the world is not our home. We're just a passing through. And our primary concern is all people who don't know Christ. And our speech toward all people must be gracious and kind and salty. Not salty like a sailor, you know that, I didn't mean that, because that's what the text says, doesn't it? Not salty like a sailor, but it says what? Seasoned with salt. An interesting, all you people who talk like sailors know exactly what I'm talking about. You used to talk like sailors. Interesting metaphor, salt, especially in the first century, was used for a variety of things. Some will know that salt makes one thirsty, and to pray that our speech causes someone to thirst for Christ we represent. Others see salt as a flavor enhancer that our speech does, in fact, bring flavor and life to conversations, and others see salt as a preservative. It keeps meat and other things from becoming corrupt and rancid. 
And all of these things work in regard to our speech. In, in your normal routine conversations, we need to ask the Lord to, to, to help create thirst for Christ and others. Our conversations do add life. And because our speech is not corrupt, you know, people will stand up and take note. Uh, those of you who are still out in the working world, and I'm sure that you've experienced this, uh, years ago when I was, worked in Detroit, I had a boss that loved to tell jokes, and none of them were clean. And he knew I was a Christian, and, and he, he just tried to tell me jokes anyway. And he was the kind of guy that when he talked to you, he was three inches from your nose. And he's your boss, so you can't back up. He's just right there. I almost wish I had a mask on back then, you know, because he's right there all the time, right there. And he comes up to me one day, he goes, Rick, I'm going to tell you a joke. And I won't say his name. I said, is it clean? He goes, oh, of course it's clean. <laughs> and so he, he, he sat there, and he told me the joke, and he's my boss, and he's that far away from me, and the punchline wasn't clean. And I just stared at him, and I, 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 ten years earlier, I would have laughed. It was a, it was a funny joke. And, and I, but I looked at him, I said, Fred, and, and I, I said, um, ten years ago, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And those kinds of things just, just aren't funny anymore. I didn't know what else to say, but I, ha I, had, I feel like I had to say something. But you experience that every day if you're out among those, those who don't know Christ. And, and the, there's a difference in those who know him and those who do. Who do. And, and, and it's our life and our language uh, that, that people will see the difference. We need to speak kindly. We need to speak graciously. We need to speak for the benefit of others. We need to contribute to the conversation. And to pray that people will thirst for Christ and, 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 and as, they, as we don't get involved in the things that they're talking about, they notice. And then Paul goes further because he knows that if we promote the gospel by praying, if you promote the gospel by how you live, if you promote the gospel by how you speak, the day will come when somebody will ask you questions about your faith. That will happen. The day will come. When you'll have to give an answer to those who ask you questions, which he says there is what you ought to be able to do. This is our job as the foot soldiers for Christ. Peter says it a different way in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. He's saying, be ready, be prepared. You've been walking with wisdom, living a quiet life. You've been engaged in conversation. And the people you're talking to, they, 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 they know you, and they know how you love your spouse. They, they know your family. By now, they know your work ethic. They've actually seen you be honest. Shock them, because they don't know very many honest people. They may have seen you get angry and irritated, and then they saw you go ask someone for forgiveness because of the anger and irritation you, you demonstrated, and they never told you. But they stood back and they thought, what is wrong with that person? He admitted he was wrong, and he asked her for forgiveness. They're watching you. They notice that you're one of the only people who talks differently than they do. And they also know that on Sunday mornings you wake up faithfully and attend church. And sometimes in a neighborhood, that alone is a testimony in the culture that we live in. And then one day they, they, they come up and they'll ask, what's different about you? Or they might ask, 
you know, I know you go to church. My mom, my son is really sick. Will you pray for them? They might look at you and say, your boss is a real pain. How on earth do you work for him without going crazy? Are you ready to answer those questions? Are you prepared to explain how you became a Christian? Are you prepared to tell them of the hope that's in you, the difference in your life of what Christ has done before and after? Can you explain why you can submit to your boss even though he's hard to work for? Do you know what you believe and can you give a proper answer and can you do it to all people with gentleness and respect? You know, Paul expects every believer to do this, not to go out on the front lines, but to live your new life in Christ, speak with unbelievers graciously, and answer the questions that come. And in answering the questions, pointing them to the only hope that you have, the Lord Jesus. This is one of the reasons why I continue to emphasize over and over and over the regular worship of the body of Christ. Because your ability to answer others, talking about the hope that is in you, will, ra- will rise exponentially the more that you hear God's word. And the more you sing songs that are doctrinally sound in fellowship with his people. Because we gather here to equip you for works of service. And one of those works of service is to be prepared to talk to others about all that God has done for you in Christ. Now, I'm going to close with a true story. I know of a young lady who was on a summer break from college, working at a job as a receptionist answering the phone and some other things. Remember those days when you called a number and there was a real person on the other end? And, and they said, hello, this is uh, you know, John Smith's company. Can I help you? That they, you young people, that used to be what happened when you called someone. Now you get a message and we get all that, push seven buttons, and then you get cut off, you get frustrated. This is the days when there's a real person on the end of the line, and that real person had a real voice. Her heart's desire when when she took the job and her prayer was, Lord, help me be a witness and a testimony for Christ. And she wondered if maybe God would allow her to talk to just one person. She would never initiate a conversation on her own. It just wasn't her personality. Within a very short time, she was put in a compromising situation. While answering the phone, she was told to tell the person on the other end that Mr. Smith is not in today, or Mr. Smith is not here, as she was looking at Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith didn't want to answer, or he may have been in his, in his office. But she was asked as a receptionist to lie for the boss so the boss didn't have to answer the phone. Um, she's a good worker, but she couldn't lie. I don't remember now if she was actually let go or she absolutely quit. But as a believing Christian, she couldn't work in the environment where she had to lie, so therefore she's now unemployed. Because she's a good worker, they wanted to keep her. So they came back and they worked out a situation where she didn't have to say that anymore. She could at least say something like, he's not available, or can he call you back? She was able to work it out where she didn't have to lie any longer. um, And so now she's working for the company again. 
That little incident spread throughout this small company. And a, and a pot-smoking father of five, way back in the shipping department, heard about this Bible-toting, honest receptionist who was willing to lose her job instead of lying. And the day came when he approached her desk and began to question her and ask questions about her faith. They didn't talk long, as I understand it and remember it, but to make a long story short, she happened to have uh, some literature, a little gospel tract that had no, nothing but scripture. It had the Romans road of salvation in it, and he, he, she gave it to this gentleman, and he went home. He came in the next day and <laughs> to her desk, and he said, I did it. And she said, did what? I did what? I did what it said. I prayed to receive Christ. I acknowledged my sin, basically, and I committed my life to Jesus Christ. And I don't want a cigarette anymore. And I stopped smoking pot last night. Amen. Jerry Cusimano's life was completely transformed by this wonderful mystery of Christ. His wife became a Christian. His two best friends became, and neighbors became Christians. I'm pretty sure all five of their kids became Christians. They joined New Tribes Missionaries and were part of mission work for years and have continued to work in world missions and their children as well. And then he pastored, he's a little older now, but he pastored a church in Pennsylvania. Why? How? One young lady prays, walks with wisdom toward outsiders, takes advantage of the opportunity, gives an answer of the hope that's in her, gives clarity with the gospel track and the fruit that came from that one summer job and one prayer that one person continues to this very day, today, with children and grandchildren. I love that story. And I saw Jerry Cusimano several years ago uh, at Parkside's Pastors Conference. And when I saw him, my soul just warmed up to both of us as we understand how God worked in that particular summer to save him from his sins simply because of a young lady put in a position to stand for the truth, not knowing God was preparing the heart of somebody back in the shipping department, speaking with grace, not disobeying God, having a reputation that will go before her. People are talking. The man hears. The man comes to her about a faith. She answers, and God brings him into his kingdom. But what does it start with? Start with prayer. Start with a prayer and a commitment. Lord, maybe one. And maybe for all of us, and myself included, maybe there's one that's out there. And maybe that one will explode into many, many more. But I think as a church, what's gripped my heart from this text is we need to pray, live a normal life, walk with Christ, speak graciously, answer well, and God will work in and through us for his glory to build his kingdom. That's what the text says. Let's pray.